This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is seeing the divinity in ourselves and in others. In the first half, Lori L. Wadsworth shares her address, Seeing the Divinity in Others. Then in the second half, Sarah M. Coyne speaks on the fantasy and the reality of your royal identity. When our children were teenagers, whenever they would leave our home, my husband or I would usually say to them, remember who you are. If you would ask them what that meant, they would probably say a couple things. First, it meant that they are a Wadsworth, and there are certain behaviors and responsibilities that come with that. But more importantly, I hope that they would say it meant that they are a child of God. We knew that each time we sent them out the door, they would be faced with all kinds of difficult decisions, and we wanted to make sure that they were armed with the knowledge of their divinity. I believe that knowing of our divinity changes the way we view ourselves and influences our daily decision-making. President Boyd K. Packer shared the following, You are a child of God. He is the father of your spirit. Spiritually, you are of noble birth, the offspring of the King of Heaven. Fix that truth in your mind and hold to it. However many generations in your mortal ancestry, no matter what race or people you represent, the pedigree of your spirit can be written on a single line. You are a child of God. I love the counsel to fix that truth in your mind and hold to it. We need to be unwavering in our belief of our individual divinity. As President Packer described, we each have a single line leading directly back to our Heavenly Father. The power of that single line can be accessed through prayer, scripture study, church, and temple attendance. Each of these seemingly simple steps are vital to seeking and receiving access to inspiration and revelation from our Heavenly Father. These are the steps of holding to the rod as illustrated in Lehi's dream. And just as promised, these steps will provide access to our own personal revelation and will safely guide us through. In Doctrine and Covenants section 112, verse 10, we are told, Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand, and give thee answer to thy prayers. I know without a doubt that he will answer your prayers when you are making decisions about things like marriage, raising children, career choices, and even seemingly simple prayers. Prayer is the opportunity to ask and receive guidance, an essential part of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. As we know and understand what it means to be a child of God, we also must know that everyone else on this earth is a child of God. Look around you. You are surrounded by children of God. Every single person on the earth now and forever is a child of God. It doesn't matter their religious or political affiliation. It doesn't matter where they come from or the color of their skin. It doesn't matter if they are just like you or vastly different from you. They are all children of our Heavenly Father. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, we read, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. If knowing that we are children of God changes the way we think and behave, how important it must be for us to acknowledge the divinity of others, these fellow citizens all around the world. I believe it will change the way we view and interact with them. 
I would like to suggest seven principles that will help us in the process of becoming no more strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens. One, don't judge others. Two, avoid contention. Three, respect the opinions and beliefs of others. Four, listen. Five, serve. Six, love all people. And seven, pray. Let me share with you some counsel and insight that describes each of these principles. First, don't judge others. Elder Uchtdorf taught in the April 2012 General Conference this topic of judging others could actually be taught in a two-word sermon. When it comes to hating, gossiping, ignoring, ridiculing, holding grudges, or wanting to cause harm, please apply the following. Stop it. It's that simple. We simply have to stop judging others and replace judgmental thoughts and feelings with a heart full of love for God and His children. God is our Father. We are His children. We are all brothers and sisters. I don't know exactly how to articulate this point of not judging others with sufficient eloquence, passion, and persuasion to make it stick. So if we take Elder Uchtdorf's advice, we simply need to stop judging others, not just because we don't want to be judged ourselves, but because as disciples of Christ, we need to see others as he sees them. Second, avoid contention. Elder Oak shared this counsel in the October 2014 General Conference. On the subject of public discourse, we should all follow the gospel teachings to love our neighbor and avoid contention. Followers of Christ should be examples of civility. We should love all people, be good listeners, and show concern for their sincere beliefs. Though we may disagree, we should not be disagreeable. Our stands and communications on controversial topics should not be contentious. We should be persons of goodwill toward all, rejecting persecution of any kind, including persecution based on race, ethnicity, religious belief or non-belief, and differences in sexual orientation. He goes on to describe a couple of specific practices that violate the Savior's command to love one another. The first is the practice of some behaving in ways that offend and alienate those not of our faith. He specifically shares examples of parents not allowing their children to associate with those who are not LDS and teenagers who bully or ostracize those not of our faith. He then describes the second practice as follows. The Savior taught that contention is a tool of the devil that surely teaches against some of the current language and practices of politics. Living with policy differences is essential to politics, but policy differences need not involve personal attacks that poison the process of government and punish participants. All of us should banish hateful communications and practice civility for differences of opinion. Similarly, in the April 1992 General Conference, Elder Marvin J. Ashton spoke of the practice of people using their tongues as sharp swords. He used this to illustrate how people are becoming more inclined to bash others. Now remember that this talk was given in 1992. I think it's clear that this practice of bashing others with different opinions has become even more commonplace 26 years later. You and I have both seen and perhaps more commonly read expressions and comments that bash those who disagree with the author. 
How can we justify this type of behavior if we know that the recipient of our bashing or contentious response is a child of God and a fellow citizen in the household of God? As Elder Oaks reminded us, contention is a tool of the devil. If we fall into the practice of bashing and personal attacks, we are giving Satan power over us, and we lose some of the access to the spirit that we so desperately need in this life. This leads to the third principle, respect the opinions and beliefs of others. Sister Sharon Eubank, president of LDS Charities, said the following at a BYU devotional earlier this year. We live in a world that is coming apart, that is being pulled apart, so that the unity of community and respect for others' beliefs, tolerance of differences, and protection of the minority voice are being shredded. It is extremely destructive to all of us when everyone outside of our narrow clan becomes an enemy we vilify. As those forces in our society rise up, then so must an answering strong sentiment and skill set on the opposite side. So how can we answer the destructive pulling apart that Sister Eubank described, this lack of tolerance, respect, and protection? How do we develop an answering strong sentiment and skill set on the opposite side? Let me share with you two recent examples from the Mormon newsroom on LDS.org. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland recently spoke at the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London, England. The discussion was how nonprofit organizations, governments, and faith groups should support both the physical and spiritual need of refugees, specifically citing the Yazidis of northern Iraq. Elder Holland describes parallels with the persecution of the early LDS Church history. I do not pretend my people's experience are the same as what we see happening in so many places today. However, all refugees share some common denominators of grief and suffering. So perhaps there is some insight buried in the persecution of my ancestors nearly two centuries ago. A second example occurred earlier this month when the Church provided the following official statement. We remain committed to support community efforts throughout the world to prevent suicide, bullying, and homelessness. Every young person should feel loved and cared for in their families, their communities, and their congregations. We can come together, bringing our perspectives and beliefs, and make each community a safe place for all. God's message is one of hope, and we want our LGBT brothers and sisters to know that they are loved, valued, and needed in His Church. So much good can be done when a community comes together to address important issues. We appreciate the sincere efforts of many who are trying to prevent suicide, bullying, and homelessness among vulnerable groups, including LGBT youth. We are grateful to be a part of the work to find solutions. I love the reminder that God's message is one of hope. It is a message of hope for all of us, and we can be the messenger of that hope in the way that we interact with others. Rather than looking for differences between us and our brothers and sisters, we should be actively looking for commonalities that we can then use to build strong relationships of mutual respect and understanding. Fourth, listen. We are counseled in James chapter 1, verse 19 to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Epictetus, a Greek philosopher, was even more specific when he said, We have two ears and one mouth. 
so that we can listen twice as much as we speak. How often are we tempted to jump to conclusions quickly based on a very limited amount of information? The instant access to messaging that is now readily available in many forms makes it much easier to judge each other quickly and harshly. Practical advice regarding the use of social media is to weigh our thoughts and words carefully before we post our reaction online. I am sure most of us can recall a time when we responded to an email or posting too quickly, only to later regret the stance that we took or the tenor of our response. You might be familiar with the story of a man who got a flat tire while traveling and needed to borrow a jack. He sees a light on in a nearby farmhouse and starts walking toward the house. As he gets closer, he begins to rehearse what he might say and imagines the response of the person living in the farmhouse. Pretty soon, his mind has gone from an expected response of, sure, help yourself, to one of the farmer demanding payment and questioning why he was so rudely awakened. By the time the man reaches the farmhouse, he knocks angrily on the door and says, I don't even want your stupid jack. Now, we might fall prey to the same type of behavior, assuming the intentions and response of another without giving them the benefit of the doubt and listening. Just a few weeks ago, Elder Garrett Gong spoke at a devotional at This is the Place Heritage Park in Salt Lake City. His topic was honoring our pioneer ancestors, particularly those who crossed the oceans and plains. He then told the audience that we still need pioneers today, and he encouraged us to become pioneers who cross school playgrounds, parking lots, and cultural halls. This kind of pioneer crosses any fence or wall of separation to build bridges of understanding, compassion, friendliness, and good neighborliness. As we listen to others, we are crossing barriers that might divide us, opening lines of communication, and building bridges of understanding. May we follow Elder Gong's counsel to be bridge-building pioneers that are so needed in today's modern day. Fifth, serve. At the fourth floor entrance to the Tanner Building, there is a bust of President N. Eldon Tanner with this quote, Service is the rent we pay for living in this world of ours. Service is a basic principle of the gospel, and we have been taught and encouraged to serve. We serve our family and friends in small, everyday ways and in big, significant ways. We serve our ward members through our callings and our ministering assignments. We serve our community by actively participating in voting, community projects, and other activities that make an impact. President Hinckley taught that we should make the world in which you live a better place for yourself and for all who will come after you. There is much to do. There are many challenges to be met. Yes, there are adversities to be overcome, not a few of them. There are trials to be endured. There is much of evil in the world and too much of harshness. Do what you can to rise above all of this. Stand up. Speak out against evil and brutality. Safeguard against abuse. Rise up in the stature of your divine inheritance. So what are we doing to make the world a better place? Are we helping those who are hurting? Are we standing up and speaking out to protect our Heavenly Father's children? I teach an undergraduate ethics class. Last fall, I shared with my students a story about an ethics class at another university. On the morning of the final exam, the students showed up to the scheduled classroom only to find a sign on the board telling them that the room had changed and the correct room was across campus. Now imagine how you might feel in this circumstance. 
These students had to quickly get from one end of campus to the other in order to make it in time for the final exam. The students rushed across campus to find the professor waiting for them. The professor then told them that they had just completed their final exam. The students were quite perplexed. The professor explained that he had set up several situations across campus that provided an opportunity for them to show their ethical behavior. For example, one person had dropped an armful of books on the sidewalk. One was seen being verbally abused by someone. A third person had fallen off their bike right in the student's pathway, while a fourth was frantically looking for a lost small child. The professor asked the students, did you stop to help pick up the books? Did you check to see if those who were hurt or in danger were okay? Did you join in the search for the lost child? I have to admit that my students were very nervous after I told them this, that that might happen to them. This professor was trying to tell his students that the important learning is in real-life application. You see, this life isn't just about writing papers and passing tests. It's not even about working really hard at your job. It's all about how we treat others. I'm not sure how it will be when we leave this earth, but I wonder if when we stand before Heavenly Father, it will go something like this. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee unhungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Or will we be on the left hand and be told, For I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and he took me not in, naked, and he clothed me not, sick and in prison, and he visited me not. Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. So what is our duty to mankind? I am not suggesting that we run faster than we have strength. What I am suggesting is that we actively look for ways that we might better serve the children of God. As we provide service and show kindness to others, we immerse ourselves in loving and helping rather than judging and contention. Sixth, love all people. On the LDS Church Instagram account earlier this year, a woman shared her story of a very difficult personal situation. She then wrote, Something I have learned from not always feeling like our family fits into church culture is that if you're having a hard time understanding or loving someone, move in closer. Move in to see the mother hurting because her daughter is ostracized, because she won't be baptized like the rest of her peers. Move in to see the teenage boy terrified to tell his parents that he doesn't want to serve a mission. Move in to see those who struggle with doubts or grief and still want to fit in. 
move in to see how amazing people are, regardless of where they are on their faith journey. Honestly, the worth of a soul is way, way too great to not move in when the chance presents itself. Plus, you may be surprised at what you find. I love the imagery of moving in closer. Moving in closer gives me a better perspective of the people around me. As I step closer to you, I see more clearly what you are experiencing. My sight is attuned to the nuances of your pain and suffering and of your goodness and your strength. Elder Ashton taught, If we could look into each other's hearts and understand the unique challenges each of us faces, I think we would treat each other more gently, with more love, patience, tolerance, and care. So how do we move in closer? Our natural instinct might be to actually back up when we see people in difficult circumstances. Perhaps we don't want to intrude on what seems like a personal matter, or we're unsure of what to say or do. If this is the case, I challenge all of us to be brave and move in closer. Literally and figuratively, stand with those who need us. Link arms with those who are suffering. We can use Elder Ashton's challenge to look into their hearts and understand their unique situation and perspective. Until I see you more clearly and understand you, I cannot truly love you. Elder Uchtdorf described this process when he said, The pure love of Christ can remove the scales of resentment and wrath from our eyes, allowing us to see others the way our Heavenly Father sees us, as flawed and imperfect mortals who have potential and worth far beyond our capacity to imagine. Because God loves us so much, we too must love and forgive each other. When I turned 50, I compiled a list of 60 things I wanted to accomplish before I turned 60. There are a couple that I want to share with you that help to describe the importance of seeing. One of these goals was to visit all of the national parks in Utah. A second was to drive on all the major roads in Utah. In order to accomplish these two goals, my husband and I took a lot of -of out-of-the-way drives instead of more direct routes. Rather than drive 70 to 80 miles an hour down I-15, we had to slow down and drive on small two-lane roads and we needed to stop and see the sights along the way. In so doing, we saw beautiful sceneries at almost every glance. I gained a greater appreciation for slowing down, looking out the window, and seeing the world around us. The beauty of the state had not changed, but what had changed was my perspective. I was now seeking out picturesque scenery, and having done so, my mind and my soul were edified and my vision was increased. I believe our sojourn in this life is sort of like my experience. We all have a lot to accomplish and numerous places to get to. But in our busyness, are we perhaps missing the real purpose of this life? Maybe we need to seek ways to slow down and look out the window of our life and see the people around us. So do we embrace, help, and love those who are different from us? Are we developing that Christ-like attitude of love in our interactions with others? Now, it might be easier to love some of God's children than others, but we are commanded to love all people. Seventh, pray. We are taught both in the New Testament and Book of Mormon to love our enemies, bless them that curse us, Do good to them that hate us, and pray for them who despitefully use us, 
and persecute us, that we may be the children of our Father who is in heaven. If we are honestly striving to love others, we must also pray for them, even if they are our enemies, maybe especially if they are our enemies. As we humble ourselves to earnestly pray for them, our eyes and our hearts will be open and we will gain a greater love for them. I would suggest that we also pray for ourselves, that we might see others as our Heavenly Father sees them, that we might have a testimony of their divinity so that with our actions we will treat them as children of God. We read about the four sons of Mosiah in the Book of Mormon. After their conversion to the gospel, they turned down the opportunity to rule the kingdom as their father and the people wanted. Instead, they decide to deliver the gospel message to the Lamanites. Now, at this time in the Book of Mormon, the Lamanites were enemies of the Nephites. The Lamanites were described as people who delighted in murdering the Nephites and robbing and plundering them. So what did the sons of Mosiah do? They prayed. Their prayers to Heavenly Father are described in Alma chapter 17, verse 9. And it came to pass that they fasted much and prayed much, that the Lord would grant unto them a portion of his spirit to go with them and abide with them, that they might be an instrument in the hands of God to bring, if it were possible, their brethren, the Lamanites, to the knowledge of their truth. They were then answered with the message that they should be comforted and told in verse 11. Go forth among the Lamanites, thy brethren, and establish my word. Yet ye shall be patient in long-suffering and afflictions, that ye may show forth good examples unto them and me. And I will make thee an instrument of thee in my hands unto the salvation of many souls. You'll notice they weren't told that this was going to be an easy experience. They were instead told to be patient in long-suffering and afflictions, which might scare off a lot of potential missionaries. But these four young had taken to heart the message of loving their enemies. They prayed and they fasted for the strength and courage to serve and teach their enemies. And in so doing, they became instruments in the hands of our Heavenly Father in doing His work on this earth. And those who had been enemies were now seen as fellow children of God. Elder Ashton taught, When we are truly become converted to Jesus Christ, committed to Him, an interesting thing happens. Our attention turns to the welfare of our fellow man, and the way we treat others becomes increasingly filled with patience, kindness, a gentle acceptance, and a desire to play a positive role in their lives. This is the beginning of true conversion. Let us open our arms to each other, accept each other for who we are, assume everyone is doing the best he or she can, and look for ways to help leave quiet messages of love and encouragement instead of being destructive with bashing. Knowing that everyone is a child of God changes the way we see, think, and behave. If we internalize these seven principles of discipleship, we will become less inclined to judge others, we will avoid contention and bashing, we will respect the opinions, values, and beliefs of others, we will listen more carefully with our hearts open. We will actively look for opportunities to serve others. We will move in closer to love all children of our Heavenly Father, and we will pray for others. Simply put, we will behave as children of God and as disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we do so, we will become more like Him in the way we interact and respond to others, especially those who are different from us. 
and we will be no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. I know that our Heavenly Father has a work for each of us to do. We can make a difference in our families, our wards, our communities, our workplaces, wherever we are. That requires that we have a testimony of our own divinity, but also the divinity of all of God's children. May we each practice these principles of discipleship in the way we treat all children of God. And may I say to you, during your time here at BYU, but also throughout all of your endeavors in this life, remember who you are. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is seeing the divinity in ourselves and in others. We've just heard from L'Oreal Wadsworth. After the break, we'll return with Sarah M. Coyne for the fantasy and the reality of your royal identity. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is seeing the divinity in ourselves and in others. Next is Sarah M. Coyne, an associate professor of human development in the BYU School of Family Life at the time of this address, titled The Fantasy and the Reality of Your Royal Identity. It's truly an honor and a privilege to be with you here today. When I was invited to speak to the devotional, I decided to ask my children what they felt was most important for BYU students to know. My 11-year-old son, Nathan, said to tell you to not vote for a particular presidential candidate who's going to remain unnamed. (laughs) My only daughter, Hannah, is age eight, has three brothers. She felt the most important thing to say should be directed to all the men and boys in the room in regard to improving your bathroom hygiene. (laughs) Hannah and Nathan both offer some pretty sound advice. But I was particularly touched by my five-year-old Aiden's response. He said it was important to know that God is special and that you are special. I pondered Aiden's words for some time. How can we know that we are truly special? And more importantly, how can we know who we truly are? Today I would like to talk to you about your royal identity. When Elaine S. Dalton was the general young woman's president, she said, Like the king's son, each of you has inherited a royal birthright. Each of you has a divine heritage. You are literally the royal daughters of our Father in Heaven. Each of you was born to be a queen. What does it mean to be truly royal, and what are the eternal implications of being royal? I study the effect of media on children and families. I just finished a study on the effect of the superhero and princess culture on children. If you've ever been around a preschool child, you will know that both superheroes and princesses are pretty popular with this age group. In fact, many children this age say that they would like to be a superhero or a princess when they grow up. I've been thinking quite a lot about superheroes and princesses over the past few years, and I'd like to structure my talk with these two groups in mind. I'll mainly be directing my comments on superheroes to the men in the room and my comments on princesses to the women. However, there are many overlaps in both categories, and I hope you can find things that apply to you in both sections. I would first like to talk about the fantasy and reality of superheroes. Some of the most popular movies of all time have featured superheroes. Why are superheroes so popular today? Well, they're pretty cool. 
We'd like to imagine ourselves being able to fly faster than a speeding bullet, see through buildings, or be almost invincible. But there are definitely some fantasies and some fallacies as portrayed by superheroes in popular media. Because of your royal identity, you will one day have more power than the most powerful superhero. You have the potential to become limitless. As cool as superheroes are, they are not always the greatest of role models in terms of power. First of all, superheroes tend to embody a hyper-masculinization that is stereotypical and I believe is not very helpful. They are often brash, arrogant, angry, aggressive, and take a lot of risks. Some of them misunderstand or abuse their power. It seems that to be a superhero or even to be a man, one needs to embody some pretty negative behaviors. Gerald Kaus, presiding bishop in the LDS Church, spoke out on the troubling portrayal of superheroes in the media in a recent BYU devotional. He said, The world values the cult of the invincible. Superheroes from Batman to Superman abound in our media. This ideology leads to dangerous behavior. We see people who want to hide their problems under the appearance of strength through boasting, aggressiveness, or abusive behaviors. Some are so obsessed without performing others that they turn to drugs or other stimulants in order to do so. Still others lose themselves in egotism and self-admiration. These forms of pride lead to disappointment, ineffectiveness, or worse." Close quote. Prescribing to a one-size-fits-all mentality that is largely influenced by the superhero culture may be damaging to our young boys and men. Weaknesses are not tolerated, and humility, empathy, emotional connection, and softness are not valued under this approach. Indeed, I feel like some of the most damaging words you can say to a young boy who is showing softness or is an emotional pain is, be a man or man up. In my opinion, the hypermasculinization we so value in the superhero culture is a complete distortion and takes us away from understanding our royal identity. Part of accepting your royal identity is understanding the purpose of your body here on earth. Another fantasy that takes us away from our true identity is very common in the superhero culture and is called the muscular ideal. Superheroes in popular media tend to look very similar. They're extremely muscular, have broad shoulders, and a small waist. Research suggests that exposure to these types of images and media models are related to body dissatisfaction and depression in men. We almost never talk to the men about body image. There are quite a few conference talks on this topic directed to women, but for some reason we ignore the men. However, indeed, we know that the spirit and the body are the soul of man, so this is not insubstantial. Your body is a gift from your Heavenly Father, and I strongly believe that one of Satan's primary attacks on your esteem is to diminish your respect for your body. He will try to make you feel like you aren't good enough or that you don't measure up. Sister Susan W. Tanner, former young woman general president, said, Satan seduces some to despise their bodies. Others he tempts to worship their bodies. In either case, he entices the world to regard the body merely as an object. In the face of so many satanic falsehoods about the body, I want to raise my voice today in support of the sanctity of the body. I testify that the body is a gift to be treated with gratitude and respect. Close quote. Men, please do not worry about trying to conform to the muscular ideal we see in the superhero culture. Please do not view your body as merely an object meant to be honed to ultimate perfection. When I picture Christ, I picture the ultimate superhero but I do not picture him as particularly muscular as portrayed in media today. You are created in the express image of our Heavenly Father and are his royal heir. That means our bodies look like him. In the eternities, I cannot imagine everyone walking around looking like they are on steroids. Instead, I imagine individuals of different shapes and sizes and an acceptance as our royal identities are made clear. 
Russell M. Nelson, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, describes, The marvel of our physical bodies is often overlooked. Who has not encountered feelings of low self-esteem because of physique or appearance? Many people wish their bodies could be more to their liking. Your body, whatever its natural gifts, is a magnificent creation of God. It is a tabernacle of flesh, a temple for your spirit. A set of your body attests to its divine design. Close quote. Do not buy into the fantasy of the superhero culture when you think about the profound gift of your body from your Heavenly Father. Your acceptance of your body is a key part to understanding your royal identity. Now on to the realities of becoming a superhero. In every superhero story, there is also an ultimate villain. Joker, Loki, Magneto, and Lex Luthor. One of my favorite superhero stories is The Incredibles. If you remember the story, there was a little boy named Buddy who wanted more than anything to be a superhero. But he didn't have any real power. He became angry, and he decided to devote his whole life to trying to destroy the real superheroes and prove how much smarter and more powerful he was than the Incredibles. Buddy changed his name to Syndrome and ended up becoming a very evil person, even though he started out wanting to help others. There is a very real and a very evil villain in the story of our lives. Satan will try anything to turn you to his dark side. Just like Buddy, he started out with a different name. Lucifer, but his name was changed to Satan when he became truly evil. The irony is that Satan could have become powerful if he would have trusted in his Father in Heaven and in Jesus Christ's plan. Instead, he was too impatient and power-hungry, which ultimately led to his undoing. Luckily, in our story, we know that in the ultimate battle between good and evil, there will be a final showdown someday. Even though Satan will be more powerful than any villain we see in the superhero culture today, Christ will win the day. Good will conquer evil. This gives me great hope and comfort as I look at the evil in the world and sometimes despair. Even when I think Satan has won over the hearts of mankind, I know that this will not be our final destiny. I would like to focus on the characteristics of becoming a true superhero, of truly embracing the qualities that will prepare you to become royal someday. Batman, Captain America, Iron Man, and Spider-Man all have some truly excellent redeeming qualities yet they pale in comparison with the ultimate superhero, Jesus Christ. When I think of a real superhero, I imagine someone who is empathetic. He is someone who is willing to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. He is soft and gentle, tender and kind. He understands his emotions, and he uses them to bless the lives of others. We see none of the arrogance or brashness portrayed in the media. Instead, we see humility and an understanding and acceptance of one's own weaknesses. One of my favorite characteristics of a true superhero is being a defender. Many of the superheroes portrayed in the media are wonderful defenders. Unfortunately, they typically do it in a violent way. I study bullying in childhood, and there are a small group of children termed defenders. These children see someone picking on someone else and are willing to stand up for the victim, get a teacher, and tell the bully to stand down. Defending someone against the schoolyard bully takes a unique type of bravery and courage. I once saw a news article about some truly amazing children from the Bridgewater, Massachusetts area. Danny Keefe, age six, suffered a severe brain hemorrhage after birth, and his parents worried he might have some serious developmental delays. Danny wears a jacket, tie, and a fedora to school every day and has some speech problems. He is also the official water coach for the Bridgewater Badgers Pee Wee Football League, an older group of fifth grade boys. Some of the kids at school started picking on Danny for the way that he spoke and for his choice in outfits. The boys on the football team heard about this and decided to show their support for him by starting a Danny Appreciation Day 
and dressing up just like Danny. The quarterback of the football team said, we heard that Danny was getting picked on, so we thought that we would all have a day to dress up like Danny. We thought we would all come to school like Danny and sponsor him to show Danny that we love him, that we love him very much. In my view, these boys are superheroes, better in fact than so many of the superheroes we see in the media. They were able to defend someone who was being hurt without resorting to aggression themselves. I just finished doing a study on superheroes and defending in preschool boys. We found that boys did not pick up the defending themes in superhero media. They were no more likely to be defenders than their peers who were less into the superhero culture. In fact, they were actually more aggressive than their peers. However, I suspect that one way to learn how to be a defender would be to study and to try to emulate Christ, the ultimate defender of mankind. One of my favorite stories is of the woman caught in adultery. If you remember the story, the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. This was a pretty serious crime, and there was no doubt that she was guilty. The law at the time allowed for her to be stoned to death, a truly terrible way to die. She must have been so afraid. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. They continued to press him, and in his wise and kind manner said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. By his very example, Christ defended the woman, and the crowds being convicted by their own conscience left her alone. Later Christ asks, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Here is a picture of my three boys. I want so badly for them to understand what it means to be a true superhero, to be kind and honest and true, to defend those who cannot defend themselves, to honor the priesthood, and to be righteous defenders of Christ's authority, to understand where true power comes from, and to respect the true source, to love and respect their future wife, and to be a kind, gentle, and understanding father, to serve those around them and to show integrity for their values, even as the world tries to knock them down. My greatest hope for my boys is that they understand their royal identities as sons of God and live their lives in a way that would make him proud. Now on to the princesses. For some reason, we are obsessed with royalty. I did my graduate work in England and then worked there for a few years before we moved to Utah. It was so interesting to live in a country that had a queen and a royal family. I watched people become obsessed when Prince William married Kate Middleton and then become even more obsessed when she gave birth to first Prince George and then Princess Charlotte. We see this same level of obsession in the media world. For example, the Disney Princess line earns around $3 billion every year. Our own research suggests that 96% of preschool girls view Disney Princess media and 82% play with Disney Princess toys. One reason I think we are obsessed with royalty is because it speaks in part to the royal within each one of us. Just stop and think about that for just a minute. You are the child of a loving heavenly king and queen. Each of us is a very real prince or princess in our own right. Speaking to the young woman, Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf, second counselor in the first presidency, said, You are truly royal spirit daughters of Almighty God. You are princesses destined to become queens. Your own wondrous story has already begun. Your once upon a time is now. Close quote. When a king or queen is crowned, there is a grand ceremony. They are given the crown jewels, a scepter, and a diadem as a mark of their royalty. 
The scriptures also use powerful imagery to speak to our royal destiny. Listen to these words. Unto the Son, he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And another. And those who receive it in faith and work righteousness shall receive a crown of eternal life. Our family lived in England for six years, and so we've been to London quite a few times. We visited an exhibit at the Tower of London that displays the crown jewels and the royal scepter that Queen Elizabeth was given at her coronation. I remember looking at these, simply enchanted by their beauty. I reflected on what an amazing experience that must have been for Elizabeth to have that crown put upon her head and the scepter placed in her hand as she became Queen of England. Each of us will have this experience one day if we are righteous and endure to the end. I get chills when I think about what it will be like to not get a crown and scepter of jewels, but as it says in the scriptures, a crown of eternal life. That one is going to blow the biggest diamond on earth completely out of the water. My name, Sarah, actually means princess in Hebrew. My email address until I turned 30 and decided I needed to grow up a little bit was Princess Sarah too. So I have been thinking about this princess thing a very, very long time. I've always felt like my name represented something important and something special. However, you don't need to be named princess to actually be one. One of my favorite stories is A Little Princess. If you remember, this is the story of Sarah Crew, a rich little girl who ends up losing her father and living in an orphanage. One day the headmistress is being particularly mean to Sarah and tells her that she is not a princess anymore. She stands up straight and tall and tells her, I am a princess. All girls are even if they live in tiny old attics, even if they dress in rags, even if they aren't pretty or smart or young, they're still princesses. These words are beyond true. No matter our circumstances in life, we are princesses or princes of a royal family, destined to become kings and queens someday. Just think of what that means for your life. How does that change the way you think about your identity and the way you manage your life? I recently saw a beautiful picture of a girl wearing a crown her head was held high and her eyes were closed. Written on the picture were these words, Sometimes, on dark days, I think nobody cares and nobody's coming. Then I remember who sends thoughts like that, and I straighten my crown. I would like now to talk about a few fantasies about being a princess. One of the most predominant storylines about princesses involves finding true love. In many of the stories, a prince rides up on a white horse to sweep the princess off her feet. He seems perfect in every way, and it is love at first sight. They kiss and ride off into a beautiful sunset together, ready to live happily ever after. Though beautiful, I think this storyline is misleading in a number of ways. First of all, I believe the youth of today are too concerned about finding their prince and expecting him to be perfect. Elder David A. Bednar of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles stated, As we visit with young adults all over the church, often they will ask, Well, what are the characteristics I should look for in a future spouse? as though they have some checklist of, I need to find someone who has these three or four or five things. The list is not for evaluating someone else. The list is for you and what you need to become. And so, if there are three primary characteristics that you hope to find in an eternal companion, then those are the three things you ought to be working to become. Then you will be attracted to someone who has those things. You are not on a shopping spree looking for the greatest value with a series of characteristics. You become what you hope your spouse will be and you'll have a greater likelihood of finding that person." Close quote. Instead of focusing so much on finding your prince, I would suggest you focus more on becoming a princess. 
And I do not mean a bratty, materialistic, helpless type of princess. I mean a daughter of God who is secure in her royal identity, who loves to learn, to help others, who has a strong testimony of Jesus Christ. Good things will happen when you focus more on becoming the right person and less on finding the perfect person. One other fantasy about being a princess is the way they generally look in the media. Each represents what is termed the thin ideal. They all have a similar body shape, with an impossibly tiny waist, large eyes, and lustrous long hair. Research shows that internalization of the thin ideal as portrayed in the media can be damaging, having an impact on girls' body image, self-esteem, and self-worth. We start this with our very youngest girls, dressing them up as princesses and complimenting them because they are so pretty. I believe there is too much appearance-based talk with our young girls and not enough focusing on their true royal identity. Similar to what we discussed on superheroes and the muscular ideal, this leads to a view that there is one size that fits all. Women tend to have greater body image issues than men, and I believe that one of Satan's greatest weapons is aimed at making women feel bad about and rejecting their body. Indeed, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles said, One would truly need a great and spacious makeup kit to compete with beauty as portrayed in media all around us. Close quote. To the women in this room, I cannot say this strongly enough. Love who you are, and part of that means loving your body with every blemish, stretch mark, and perceived flaw. Do not waste any more of your precious time obsessing over the way you look. In the film Misrepresentation, Katie Couric aptly states, If women spent more time helping a sick neighbor or volunteering at a homeless shelter, focusing on how to use all their energy to solve some of the world's problems, if they spent a tenth of the time thinking about those things that they do thinking about their weight, I mean, I think we'd solve all the world's problems in a matter of months." Close quote. Yes, we want to be healthy, but this means very different things for each person, and body acceptance may be difficult to achieve for some of us. Our Father in Heaven loves us for who we are. In fact, I think He cares very little about our current dress size or how we look in a bathing suit. Remember, we are created in the image of our Heavenly Parents. We don't know much about our Heavenly Mother. We don't know what she looks like or even much of who she is as an individual. I can't wait to meet her someday. I have so many questions for her. I do believe that my body looks like hers in a way. I want to be respectful and true to her image and the way that she lived her life so that I can be eligible for the gift of my body on this earth. I'd like to discuss one last fantasy that has a ring of truth. In many of the stories, such as Sleeping Beauty or Snow White, the princess falls asleep and is rescued by a prince. Ladies, we are not on this earth to fall asleep. Our Heavenly Father has a much bigger fairy tale in store for us. He has asked us to serve our communities and our families, to mother and nurture the children in our care, whether that is our own children, nieces and nephews, or other children in our sphere of influence, to learn and to grow. My advice would be to get as much education during this time of your life as you can. Rely on the Spirit as you make decisions about your education and your career. One of my favorite quotes of all time is by President Gordon B. Hinckley in a talk called, How Can I Become the Woman of Whom I Dream? He says, Find purpose in your life, choose the things you would like to do, and educate yourselves to be effective in their pursuit. For most, it is very difficult to settle on a vocation. You are hopeful you will marry and that all will be taken care of. In this day and time, a girl needs an education. She needs the means and skills by which to earn a living should she find herself in a situation where it becomes necessary to do so. Study your options. 
Pray to the Lord earnestly for direction. Then pursue your course with resolution. The whole gamut of human endeavor is now open to women. There is not anything that you cannot do if you will set your mind to it. You can include in the dream of the woman you would like to be a picture of one qualified to serve society and make a significant contribution to the world of which she will be a part. Close quote. I resonate so much with this quote. Our personal circumstances necessitated that I become the primary earner for our family. This was a difficult decision, and we spent many, many nights on our knees in prayer. Many people were supportive, but others were judgmental and condescending when I started working full-time at BYU. My favorite scripture is Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. It says, Trust the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. I believe that promise with all my heart. I am beyond lucky to have found a man who is my true equal, who understands, as it says in the family proclamation, that we are obligated to help one another as equal partners. I trust in the spiritual promptings we received that helped me know that I was meant to be at BYU. Because of the choices I made earlier in life and the education I felt prompted to receive, I am becoming the type of scholar that I know my Heavenly Father needs me to become. Your path and your future might be very different than mine. Rely closely on the Spirit and trust in the Lord with all of your heart when deciding what is right for your family. Regardless of your circumstances, we need women who can speak up and speak out. In a beautiful talk entitled The Plea to My Sisters, President Russell M. Nelson said, My dear sisters, whatever your calling, whatever your circumstances, we need your impressions, your insights, and your inspiration. We need you to speak up and speak out in ward and state councils. We need each married sister to speak as a contributing and full partner as you unite with your husband in governing your family. Married or single, you sisters possess distinctive capabilities and special intuition you have received as gifts from God. We brethren cannot duplicate your unique influence. Close quote. Do not be afraid to share your experiences and your insights in a class or in a calling, especially when you're in a leadership position. We need your voices and we need you all. We need the single sisters. We need the mothers. We need the widows and the grandmas. We need the aunts and the daughters. We need the women who work and we need the women who stay at home with their children. I love this quote by Sister Ruth Renlin, who's Elder Renlin's wife, who says, One thing I've always felt strongly about is that there's no one way to be an LDS woman. Close quote. We have many roles, but we have one thing in common. We are daughters, and I would add princesses, of a Heavenly Father who loves us and we love Him. And he needs the women of the church more so in this time than in any other. We are not here to fall asleep. In our princess study, we asked each preschool girl who their favorite princess was and why. The vast majority chose Rapunzel, likely because the movie Tangled had just come out. The number one reason why they liked Rapunzel was because of the way she looked, with the two most common answers being because she was pretty or because she was blonde. There was only one girl in the entire study who chose Mulan. When asked why, she answered boldly, because she saves China. God has asked us not only to save China, but to fight for and defend our brothers and sisters across the entire world. We simply cannot do this if we fall asleep and do nothing. Here is my little princess, my daughter Hannah. This picture was taken just before her baptism. I hope she knows that she is treasured by both her parents and her father in heaven. I hope she truly understands her royal identity. That being a princess isn't just about dressing up in fancy dresses, that instead it becomes a core part of her identity. 
that being a daughter of a heavenly king is knowledge that will help her get through the hard times that she will surely experience in her life. Being a princess comes with responsibility to care for others, to be brave and have a good courage, to not fall asleep, but to truly do good in the world. I would like to end with one reality to the princess tale. Even though we are not here to fall asleep, we will be rescued by a prince. And not just any prince. He goes by many names, but one of my favorites is the Prince of Peace. I love my Savior, Jesus Christ. I know without a shadow of a doubt that he atoned for my sins. He descended below all so that he could know exactly what we are going through. He sacrificed all so that I could live. Christ has rescued me so many times in my life. This last year, we experienced the death of a beloved niece. I'm sure I will experience more difficult things, but I have had no more painful moment in my life than watching my sister bury her only child, princess they had so fervently wanted. I remember one day I was working in my office and I was just so sad and I couldn't seem to work. I remember shutting down my computer, crawling under my desk, curling up into a little ball and just sobbing. I felt like nothing could ever be right in the world again. I began to pray for comfort and understanding. The Spirit filled the room and penetrated my heart so that I could barely breathe. I realized that Heavenly Father had also lost a child, and I imagined the pain he must have felt as he watched his beloved son on the cross. I was given an assurance that my niece, our little princess, was destined for royalty, and the bands of death were nothing compared to the happily ever after that she was currently experiencing. We are each of royal birth, princesses and princes in our own right, with the potential to have greater power and reach than the most powerful superhero portrayed in the media today. Let us not waste this precious gift. Instead, let it shape our identity and be a comfort to us when we are going through our hardest moments. I hope that realizing that you are royal changes the very way that you see yourself, your body, your family, your life, and your destiny. Normally in this talk, I would end by saying that I hope you all live happily ever after. Instead, I'll end using even more appropriate words. In the name of the Prince of Peace, even the Savior Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Seeing the Divinity in Ourselves and in Others, with thoughts from L'Oreal Wadsworth and Sarah M. Coyne. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.